3: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome
0: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. Now, in the last episode, we talked a bit about the mythology behind the moons of Mars, the the companions and sons of the the war god Ares, the the Roman Mars, the god of war. And we talked about how the names of these came to be applied to the moons of Mars, these two small objects that were discovered in the late 19th century. We talked about that discovery story. Uh, We talked about some of the basic properties of Phobos and Deimos, and why there is some question about what their origin was. We're going to get into more detail about that today. And we ended up talking about a bizarre conspiracy theory about uh, an interesting surface feature of Phobos that really had nothing to it. But the surface feature known as the Phobos monolith is inherently very interesting.
1: Yeah. And so in this episode, we're going to we're going to cover more interesting stuff about Phobos and Deimos, uh, stuff about the history of its exploration. We'll get into another idea that conspiracy theorists uh, seem to really like uh, (laughs) concerning uh, one of the two moons. There'll be a dash of mythology here and there,
0: uh, but it should be a fun ride. Now, Rob, in the last episode, we were talking about how close the moon Phobos is to Mars. It is the closest moon to its host planet. In the entire solar system, uh, it's so close. I think it's a it's a matter of you know just a, like several thousand kilometers. It's a distance that is uh, a little bit longer than the driving distance between Miami and Vancouver, as we uh, talked about it the last time. So it, you know if you if there were a road between them, you could drive it in two or three days, and that's incredibly close for a moon to uh, to orbit its host planet. But I found another point of comparison that we didn't make in. In the last episode that I thought was absolutely astounding. And it's that the moon Phobos orbits so close to the surface of Mars that if you are standing near the polar regions of Mars, sometimes you can't see the moon, even when it's on the same side of the planet as you, because it's blocked by the horizon. Oh, like wow. It's orbiting down near the equator and you can't see it over the curvature of Mars itself. That, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that is that is pretty amazing. And of course, as we discussed, it's getting closer
1: to Mars and will eventually, uh, you know, in millions and millions of years in the future, will actually uh, crash into Mars or break up in orbit and become a, uh, a new ring around the planet. Yeah, they're going to tussle.
0: Yeah, yeah. But one of the things we also alluded to in the last episode is that these two moons, Phobos and Deimos, have extremely weird properties that Really raise questions about where they come from in the first place, and you can ask this about moons all throughout the solar system. Like there is some question about where the moon of Earth came from. There's a there's a pretty strong leading theory that is the giant impact hypothesis, the idea that uh, early during the formation of Earth, Earth was hit by a planetesimal or a, you know a Mars-sized object, roughly, and that giant impact created a bunch of debris, and eventually. The, what was left over coalesced into the Earth and then the moon in orbit around the Earth.
1: Indeed, uh, certain properties of these moons, as we'll discuss here, tend to lend themselves more to one interpretation and other properties, uh, if you focus on those, lend towards another in- interpretation, which leads to just a fair amount of, um, you know, continued confusion, but also intense fascination.
0: Yeah, there's an article about this that we were both reading that kind of sums up some of the debate pretty nicely. It was published in the New York Times by Robin George Andrews in July 2020. Uh, called "Why the Super Weird Moons of Mars Fascinate Scientists," and it briefly goes over some of the arguments either ways. Now, um, one of the things it points out is that if you're just to look at the what the moons appear to be made of, you know, their their sort of physical characteristics in and of themselves, they look a lot like captured asteroids—asteroids asteroids that at some point would have been bumped off course and then caught in the gravity well of Mars so that they ended up just orbiting Mars permanently.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the, the asteroid capture hypothesis, which, uh, which, which is a popular one, but it doesn't quite explain everything.
0: Right. Now, in its favor, one of the main things it has going for it is that the material that the Martian moons are made of looks a lot like asteroid-type material.
1: Yeah, so they, 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 they look like asteroids. They seem to be composed of the same material as asteroids. And yeah, they would have just ended up too close to Mars gravitational pull and would have been simply orbitally dominated by the planet Mars. Uh, the god of war says, you two, you, you shattered uh, wrecks. you are now my
0: sons. Come with me right into battle with me. Uh It's like in the cop movie when you commandeer the vehicle, you know, I'm I'm commandeering this vehicle or James Bond gets into somebody's car and drives off with it. Or I guess it would be more like tying a car to you and making it swing around you. I guess that analogy isn't that great. But yeah, it's it's saying you're coming with me now. Right. But
1: the other interesting thing is that they have. That kind of throws this off is they have near equatorial orbits, and as Andrews points out in this article, this suggests that they coalesced from a disk of debris that danced around a very young Mars. So it basically is just all too neat and tidy, surely, to be an asteroid capture. So in other words, like, okay, if they're, if it's asteroid capture, these are like wildcats. But if they're wildcats, why are they behaving like orbital house cats? So, yeah. um, So that's that's part of the, the big confusion here.
0: Yeah, so you got some creepy space Yukon golds that look like they're made of roughly asteroid stuff. But the way they orbit Mars, it's a couple of things, actually, that their orbits are near equatorial, meaning that they orbit basically, in, not exactly, but pretty close to around the equator line of Mars, you know, in between its poles. And then the other part is that their orbits are nearly perfectly circular. And this is just not what you would expect to see with a captured asteroid. If an asteroid asteroid came in that was originally orbiting the sun at a different speed, and then it just got stuck in the gravity well of Mars, what well, you would probably expect to see is that its orbit would be more irregular, so more stretched out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's often when something gets captured by an object and it was originally on its own trajectory, it tends to have a more stretched out oval-type orbit. But then the other thing is you would expect its orbit to be tilted at a steeper angle rather than neatly orbiting pretty close to its equatorial line. Yeah, Uh, And then there's one more factor that I I think is worth considering. This is actually cited in that uh, article in the New York times by Robin George Andrews and uh, Andrews quotes a uh, Japanese scientist named Tomohiro Usui, who points out that also Mars gravity is pretty weak. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, you you can capture an asteroid, but Tomohiro Usui points out that Mars has like a 10th of earth's mass. So it's, Kind of improbable that it would be able to capture two asteroids that are traveling by at orbital speeds, you know, speeds of orbiting the sun. Uh, So it just seems kind of unlikely as an origin story for them, and their orbits really don't seem to match what you would expect from, from asteroid capture. Now, there is another hypothesis that would make some sense, uh, which is that what if the moons of Mars were formed from a debris disk that was kicked up into orbit around Mars after a colossal impact. So not exactly the same as, but uh, but similar to one of the leading uh, ideas about where the Earth's moon comes from. There's a giant impact on Mars at some point, and that shoots all this stuff into space around Mars, which gradually coalesces into a disk that's in orbit around Mars, and then that disk gravitationally coalesces into solid objects, these two moons. Now, there's some reasons for doubting that as well. I mean, one idea offered in this article is that Demos's orbit is maybe a little too far out to be explained that way, but that could possibly be overcome. Uh, one paper I was looking at that supports the idea of a giant impact as the original source of Phobos and Demos was published in Nature Geoscience in 2016, Uh, by uh, Pascal Rosenblatt et al. And it's called Accretion of Phobos and Deimos in an Extended Debris Disc Stirred by Transient Moons. Um, And so uh, they write in their abstract that Here we use numerical simulations to suggest that Phobos and Deimos accreted from the outer portion of a debris disk formed after a giant impact on Mars. In our simulations, larger moons form from material in the denser inner disk and migrate outwards due to gravitational interactions with the disk. The resulting orbital resonances spread outwards and gather dispersed outer disk debris, facilitating accretion into two satellites of sizes similar to Phobos and Deimos. The larger inner moons fall back to Mars after about five million years due to the tidal pull of the planet after which the two outer satellites evolve into Phobos and Deimos-like orbits. The proposed scenario can explain why Mars has two small satellites instead of one large moon. Our model predicts that Phobos and Deimos are composed of a mixture of material from Mars and the impactor. Uh, so again, this would be kind of similar to the uh, Earth's moon origin story. And there's a giant impact on Mars long, long ago. It spits out all this debris into orbit around Mars that forms into multiple moons at different orbital distances, and then interactions between those eventually cause inner moons to be destroyed, spiraling into Mars as Phobos will one day do. And then uh, and then these other objects to coalesce into the current orbits that we see, for. Or Phobos and Deimos, so that's one plausible possibility they've put together.
1: Yeah, and this satisfies uh, some of the mysteries that we discussed earlier. How can it be uh, you know, have the, the qualities of an asteroid capture, but also have the qualities of, uh, of something that formed out of a disk around Mars?
0: Now we've mentioned that Phobos, as it spirals into Mars, will probably break apart. I mean, we mentioned a couple options. It could just crash into Mars. More of the sources that I was reading seem to suggest that the the more likely option is that as it spirals into Mars, it will be sort of ripped apart by tidal forces and it will break up and become rings in orbit around Mars. Uh, But a really interesting question that I came across in another study in Nature Geoscience, this one published in 2017, this is the question of what if this future scenario where Phobos breaks up in orbit around Mars and becomes rings, what if that has already happened? Very interesting origin hypothesis uh, for for these two moons. Uh, So this is by Andrew J. Hesselbrock and David A. Minton. Uh, Again, that's Nature Geoscience in 2017 called An Ongoing Satellite Ring Cycle of Mars and the Origins of Phobos and Deimos. Now, this uh, this explanation has a similar beginning as the last one, but uh, some of the details are different. Uh, Again, to read from their abstract, The Martian moons Phobos and Deimos may have accreted from a ring of impact debris, but explaining their origin from a single giant impact has proven difficult. One clue may lie in the orbit of Phobos that is slowly decaying as the satellite undergoes tidal interactions with Mars. In about 70 million years, Phobos is predicted to reach the location of tidal breakup and break apart to form a new ring around the planet. Here we use numerical simulations to suggest that the resulting ring will viscously spread to eventually deposit about 80% of debris onto Mars, the remaining 20% of debris will accrete into a new generation of satellites. Furthermore, we propose that this process has occurred repeatedly throughout Martian history. In our simulations, beginning with a large satellite formed after giant impact with early Mars, we find that between three and seven ring satellite cycles over the past 4.3 billion years can explain Phobos and Deimos as they are observed today. Such a scenario implies the deposition of significant ring material onto Mars during each cycle we hypothesize that some anomalous sedimentary deposits observed on Mars may be linked to these periodic episodes of ring deposition. So, Phobos, or the ancestor of Phobos, could have been once much larger, maybe 20 times more massive, but then there's this pattern that repeats over time almost like you know the the mythological cycle of history where there's orbital decay it's it's going closer and closer down into mars it shatters from tidal forces it's you know turned is splits apart into a million pieces forms a ring around mars the pieces of the ring then coalesce into a moon and then repeat with the moon getting smaller every cycle
1: i love this because if you if you take it and then apply it to the mythological uh, model that we've been discussing, here you have Mars, who is, you know, actually more uh, the, the uh, you know, we, can, we think more of the, the Greek uh, uh, war god Ares, representing the worst of war, just the, the bloodshed and the screams, just this awful deity. The god of the screams of the dying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the god of the screams of the dying. and And so it makes sense that his two loyal sons who are destined to rebel against him have always rebelled against him. Like there's a cycle of them rebelling against the 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 Almighty Father here, being destroyed, breaking up, but then he reforms them, you know, it's like they're resurrected
0: to continue to serve him as these kind of misshapen wraiths. Oh, man. Yeah, I love that. Uh, another way to think about it is if you're talking about a god of war, I mean, this is the process of attrition, right? Yeah. Slowly wearing down your enemy's forces over time. Yeah, yeah. They keep coming back, but each time weaker and weaker. Now, like many things in space science, this is one of these great Fascinating open questions that really could uh, th- we could really have a better chance of solving if we were to have more physical data to work with, and mm-hmm. so this is one of the many reasons that there have been all these proposed missions to the moons of Mars, and including th- there's a, there's an upcoming mission that we'll talk about in a bit uh, from the Japanese space agency from JAXA that is planning to go to the moons of Mars in uh, I think it's supposed to launch in 2024 and hopefully arrive in 2025. But there we could learn more about the composition of these uh, moons, which could maybe tell us more about their history. But to come back to that New York Times article we were talking about, uh, there's a part of it which says, quote, "...although made of ancient matter, the Phobos we see today may have been a symbol just 200 million years ago. If it were confirmed that Phobos is a haphazardly clumped-together mass, it would be a revelation, suggesting planets with rings are the norm for our solar system." And I had to think about that for a second, and then I realized, like, oh, yeah, okay, so if it's normal for Mars to have a ring, and we, we just happen to be observing it during one of its, you know, inter-ring periods, one of its ringless periods, mm-hmm. that would mean the majority of planets in our solar system have rings. Jupiter has rings, Saturn has huge rings, uh, Uranus has rings, so you'd realize that rings are the standard, and a planet without rings is actually weirder.
1: Yeah, I guess it's kind of like thinking about cities, right? Um Imagine, you know, most cities have some sort of sprawling suburbs, but mm-hmm. maybe you have a city that doesn't really have suburbs, but just has like a, a centralized satellite uh, town wow. outside of it, maybe two such satellite towns. Um but if that was the main thing you saw, you might think, "Oh, this is just how it works. This is how cities are, are uh, come together."
0: Though uh, one thing I should point out from that article, they, they quote again, the, uh, the the Japanese researcher Tomohiro Usui, who uh, says that you know this that we were just talking about could possibly be true of Phobos, but at the same time not for Deimos. It's possible that they you know that they have these different origins. They're, they're not exactly the same thing. So Deimos could be much older than Phobos potentially. Uh, Usui says that Deimos could be three five billion years old whereas it's it's possible that phobos is much much younger just like 200 million years old but again it's one of those things that uh it'll be hard to know for sure until we send something there and maybe even Mm. bring part of it back absolutely
1: shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
0: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission?
0: I'm ready to get weird. Do you want to talk about some weird historical hypotheses about Phobos? Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, Concerning the idea of a hollow Phobos. Now, uh, one thing I want to stress here is, again, we'd love to have physical evidence, physical material to look at regarding Phobos and Deimos, but we don't yet hopefully in the future, but we don't have it now. What we have are, um, in addition to to various other readings, we have visual images Mm -hmm. uh, taken via flybys and and Mars missions. But there was a time where we didn't have those additional um, images. So I want to go back to the late 1950s, and ultimately to the decades preceding that, and the work of Russian astrophysicist uh, Yosef uh, Shiklovsky, who hypothesized that Phobos might be hollow and, even more to the point, might be an artificial structure. Uh-oh. Yeah. Now, Yosef uh, Shklovsky uh, was born 1916, died 1985, He was a Soviet astronomer and astrophysicist, and we've actually mentioned him on the show before because he co-wrote, and he had the main credited author, uh, uh, on Intelligent Life in the Universe with Carl Sagan in 1966. I believe we discussed it in our look at Ancient Astronaut Hypothesis, which... uh, uh, you know the, the basics of which they went into in this book. And you know, in a way, this this book was was kind of pivotal to the whole ancient aliens movement. Even though I have to stress that Shklovsky and Sagan, they discussed it rather, uh, you know, very in a very grounded nature, very scientifically. Um, and it's other authors who really have uh, would run wild with it and um, and just you know go off the speculative deep end with it.
0: You know, there's something I notice in the in the responsible science journalism of today that is a kind of automatic, reactive uh, opposition to the subject of like aliens or evidence for aliens, and and I get it right because if you're covering space, if you're covering astronomy, if you're covering space missions, you know, in anything having to do with space, one of the things you're going to be dealing with most often is people irresponsibly taking some piece of evidence that in no way really indicates evidence of alien life and saying it's aliens. And the, they're right. just going to be doing that over and over again. And then you just end up having to spend your career writing article after article of like, no, no, This rock on Mars is not an alien. Uh, There's no reason you have to conclude that, you know, natural wind erosion can cause features that look strange like this. Here's how. And then you can end up explaining interesting things about natural science, about like how wind erosion can cause something to look sculpted or designed in a Mm -hmm. certain way. Or you, you know, you end up saying like, no, we, we don't have any reason to conclude yet that the signal coming from this star, even though it's like repeating is an alien. And then you can explain stuff about pulsars and how they work and what we know about them. And that's all good stuff. But I think because there is such a tendency for, uh, for hoax hype people and for the public generally, to get overexcited about something that's mysterious and say, therefore, it's aliens, you you can start getting opposed to even playing with the idea of aliens, right? It starts to become like subject matter that's almost like inherently revolting to you. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And, and I'm very much like I, I very much respect all the skeptical work, you know, and we do that, too. Like, we, we end up having to say, like, no, there's no reason to conclude this is aliens. Nothing we have ever discovered in space is definitely aliens. There's no reason to think that there's never even really been a strong Piece of evidence for aliens that we've come across. Uh, I, I think that there's no reason at all to go from there to say so. Therefore, like, don't play around with the idea of aliens. Like, what would what would be evidence if we were to find it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like with the Muamua. You know, I think there's going to be there are going to be people out there who are just always going to be convinced that was a spaceship. It, it wasn't. <laughs> it was not a spaceship, right? But you know, certainly the spaceship interpretation is one that is. In a way, weird way, like easier to fathom because it's so uh, it's so based in science fiction. You know, you don't need to break down a discussion of like why this thing was ejected from uh, from some distant uh, 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 interstellar locale. You know, um, and yeah, it's just more exciting. But it, it, to a certain extent, any coverage of the will always involve having to to really remind everybody that there is there's there's no strong evidence that it was a spaceship that it was not a spaceship but let's explore these these also these other fascinating ideas and hypotheses concerning its origin and its
0: nature sure so i mean i feel very attracted to kind of the, the carl sagan outlook never saying like oh yeah it's aliens when you see something you don't understand but also Feeling fully free to speculate about the idea of aliens because it's an interesting subject. I mean, it's fun to think about and, and consider what the, the real scientific implications of the existence of aliens would be, even though you're always going to try to remain skeptical and grounded and not interpret every new piece of information about the universe that you can't currently explain as an artifact of an alien civilization. Right, right.
1: Yeah. And and Sagan was great with this. You know, he was always open to exploring those big questions and those 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 um you know, more radical questions, but doing so in a balanced way where you're saying, well, okay, let's let's talk about it. Yes, it could you know, aliens certainly could exist. They could have visited the earth. There could be uh evidence of it in the historical record, but what would that look like? What specifically would we be looking for? Um but that is a far healthier approach in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And for me, I I think it's just like important to just always emphasize the lines between, you know, factual reporting and intellectual play. Yes.
1: Now, interestingly enough, in in this book in uh, in question here, Shklovsky uh, and Sagan they describe Phobos and Deimos as quote the chariot horses of the god of war, um, and I'm I'm unclear on where that comes from exactly. Uh, them being horses, as opposed to or in addition to being uh, the sons of Ares, but I think it still checks out. Uh, you know, whether they're war horses or or of suns, they're kind of treated like war horses.
0: Yeah. I mean, Aries could have had some horse sons. That would make sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, another bit that they note in the book, and, and I do want to continue to drive on this, this is a 1966 book. Um, quote, thus, if we neglect the artificial satellites of Earth, Phobos is the only known moon in the solar system with a period of revolution about its planet, which is less than the period of rotation of the planet
0: itself. Yeah, so it takes earth's moon roughly a month to orbit the earth right Mm -hmm. uh it takes less than a day for phobos to less than a martian day for phobos to orbit mars i think uh it orbits like three point something times every martian day and by its very
1: nature a martian day is one rotation yeah Uh, so it's kind of it's easy to miss that 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 point so i like the way that it really drove that home here
0: so if you're, you're clocking in at work for your, your Martian workday, oh, there goes Phobos. And then maybe you could look at Phobos again to know when it's time to go home. Yeah. <laughs> now,
1: if it wasn't already obvious from uh, the association with Sagan, uh, I want to be clear that uh, Shklovsky was no quack. Yeah. In fact, there's a crater on Phobos named for him. Uh, Shklovsky uh, crater. Uh, but he was he was understandably intrigued and confused by the Martian moons for decades for the reasons that we've already stated. Uh, Sagan in 1966 described Shklovsky's ideas concerning uh, the idea of a hollow Phobos as, quote, uh, the only serious extant argument supporting intelligent life on Mars. Now, to now certainly, additional information eventually discredited this notion. Uh, but it's interesting to look at how he got there. And uh, the book with Sagan contains a fair amount of uh, of math and technical information. Uh, it's not it's not you know certainly not a technical paper, but it's certainly not the wide audience work of science communication that we often associate with with Sagan's solo books and uh, and articles to come. Uh, but they, uh, they break down this idea in great deal, again, based on data from 1966 and before.
0: So Shklovsky's idea of a hollow Phobos and then eventually tying that to speculation about alien life, this is something that is no longer an option given what we know about Phobos today, but it, we're exploring this as a historical curiosity of a hypothesis.
1: Yes, yes. So uh, here's, the, here's one of the main points here I'm going to read from, from the article. And, uh, and I should mention as well that in these, uh, some of these quotes, um, they'll be using I, and I think we're very much uh, – that I is referring to Chuklowski. Quote, But how can a natural satellite have such a low density? The material of which it is made must have a certain amount of rigidity so that cohesive forces will be stronger than the gravitational tide forces of Mars, which will tend to disrupt the satellite. Such rigidity would ordinarily exclude densities below about 0.1 grams per centimeter to the negative third power. Thus, only one possibility remains. Could Phobos be indeed rigid on the outside but hollow on the inside? A natural satellite cannot be a hollow object. Therefore, we are led to the possibility that Phobos, and possibly Deimos as well, may be artificial satellites of Mars. And if so, quote, they would be artificial satellites on a scale surpassing the fondest dreams of contemporary rocket engineers.
0: Now, again, this hypothesis is no longer really viable, given the evidence that we have available to us today. But what a, what a wild and wonderful idea.
1: Yeah. And uh, and Shklovsky continues to, to, to back this up and, and make some arguments around it. So I'm going to roll through some of them here. Uh, first of all, he says, this idea might seem fantastic at first glance, but it demands serious consideration because a, a technologically advanced civilization would certainly be capable of manufacturing and launching such an advanced satellite. And if Mars did not have any natural moons, the establishment of artificial moons would be a, a greatly important endeavor to any native civilization or presumably, and this is just my reading of it, any civilization that took a strong interest in the planet. Furthermore, Shuklovsky says it, it would be much easier for a Martian presence to launch a satellite uh, than for uh, you know, Earthlings to launch a satellite due to the reduced Martian gravity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Less work is required to get something into orbit. And also, quote, conceivably, the capture and hollowing of a small asteroid might be technically more feasible than the construction in orbit of an artificial satellite with material brought from the surface. In our future, uh, uh, he says, we too might construct such artificial satellites, and if we pass on into extinction, well, those satellites might remain. And if so, quote, We cannot reasonably assess these possibilities, but it does seem conceivable that the lifetime of our artificial satellites may exceed the lifetime of our civilization. These satellites would then remain as unique and striking monuments to a vanished species which had once flourished on the planet Earth. So hypothetically, if Mars had once harbored advanced life forms and they developed an advanced enough civilization, they might have established such artificial satellites perhaps some hundreds of millions of years
0: ago. So again, to be very clear, it is not currently the case that there is evidence to that points strongly to an artificial origin for these moons. Though, of course, all the interesting mysteries about their natural origins remain. But to add to the 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 beauty of this idea, uh, there's another fact about Phobos I wanted to add, which is that it is thought to have a lo- a very thick layer of powdery regolith. All around mm-hmm. the outside of it, so it has. Uh, it's, it's often thought to be very deep. I've read estimates that it's like hundred meters deep, so it's like you know over three hundred feet deep. Of this powdery, dusty material, this regolith on the outside of it, uh, which, which gives the possibility that if in this alternate universe scenario where these moons were artificial creations of ancient technology, you could literally maybe uncover surface features of them indicating artificial origin by, dusting, by moving the dust away, you know, like, like the movie scene where you wipe the, the sand <laughs> off of a sign and see the writing on it.
1: Yeah, blow the except, dust off of the, uh, the the artifact and determine what it is.
0: Uh, except, I guess it'd be a hundred meters of dust, so that'd be yeah. uh, that's that's mega dust.
1: <laughs> now, uh, you know, we, we were talking about the the difference between you know coming up with a controversial hypothesis uh, versus just running wild with radical ideas, and it seems it seems like uh, Shklovsky was mindful of this as well because he points out that that there are. Stronger and less favorable versions of this kind of line of thinking. He points out that Soviet researcher and someone who's, who would later come to be known as the father of Russian UFO-ology, Felix Zeigel, had an even more extreme notion. Uh, perhaps Phobos and Deimos zeigel argued perhaps they weren't discovered by the astronomer uh, herschel during the favorable martian opposition that means you know the closeness of of mars to earth and therefore it's increased um uh, visibility via telescope uh, perhaps herschel didn't discover these moons in 1862 and instead they were discovered uh, by this by a smaller telescope in 1877 because they were not there in 1862. Rather, they were launched after 1862 by an existing Mars civilization, and therefore uh, were there to be discovered in 1877. Seems implausible. Yes, and Shklovsky dismisses this notion for several reasons. In part, it, because the Naval Telescope that was actually used to discover the moons while smaller was still superior to Herschel's, and he contends that if yeah the is very into this idea that the moons could be artificial, but he's like the only way this works is if they were also ancient, there's no way that these were just launched in the the past few years uh and a part of that also comes down to you know we've discussed this in terms before, like one of the rules of 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 observing the cosmos is to realize. That or to work from the, the vantage point that we have we do not have a privileged place in the universe uh, in space or in time. So the idea that we just happen to be looking at Mars uh, one day and there were no moons, and then we're looking at it years later and there are moons because they were launched in the interim. That's just it's just too perfect. It's it's just. Too unlikely. And this is actually one of the the reasons that Shiklowski says that uh, that he thinks that, uh, you know, another reason that Phobos could have potentially been uh, some sort of an artificial creation. He points out that its eventual crash into Mars means that we are in the unlikely position of viewing the moon during its final days. Um, I mean. You could argue that we're not really talking about days. We're talking about millions and millions of years. Uh, it's just astronomically speaking, they're days. Uh, and he argued that it was, quote, an unlikely but not impossible coincidence. Now, all of this being said, Chagosky also insisted that if ancient Mars was truly this advanced, advanced enough to create huge artificial satellites and either construct them in orbit make them out of asteroids or launch them into orbit around mars then we will we're bound to eventually discover evidence of this civilization not only you know via these satellites of mars but also mars itself during the future exploration of the red planet and as far as the moons themselves go, he, he said, well, eventually we're going to conduct flybys uh, and the and the images that we gain from these. This will shed light on them. Will they have special shapes, for example? And of course, the answer would prove to be yes, but also sort of no as well, because uh, as we've discussed, like Phobos does have an unusual shape. But is it is it a special shape? Is it is it a shape that that screams um, artificial construction? Um,
0: I, th- I think pretty much everybody would argue no. I can't wait to read the articles about how no, actually, the shape of a Yukon gold potato is the perfect shape. Uh, for for an orbital launch platform or whatever this thing was supposed to be a space elevator. I think that's what some of the its aliens people are saying today. yeah that uh, that that Phobos was an ancient Martian space elevator. once again, there there is no strong evidence of this is I mean, it's fine to play around, have fun speculating about that. but you know understand the difference between playing with an idea and saying like that there's actually strong evidence for it. There is not.
1: Right, yeah, because because certainly Shklovsky ultimately contended that while his own hypothesis was scientifically sound at the time, though there were some uh, there were some arguments and some uh, and, and certainly some opposition to his ideas, and people saying, "Well, I don't think we need to go that far in trying to explain Phobos," um, Shklovsky still. Acknowledge that future explorations would put his hypothesis to the test and that it very well could prove incorrect. And if it proved incorrect, though, uh, then it would have still served the purpose of forcing people to think about the sorts of advanced work that aliens cultures would have constructed or could have constructed. And what would remain of them and therefore what we could potentially look for uh, in, in terms of, uh, of evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence and extraterrestrial life.
0: Yeah. And of course, one of the signs of a good hypothesis is that it makes specific predictions that can be tested in the future. Right.
1: And, uh, you know, and uh, again, this means nothing to people who want to run wild with the idea that Phobos is hollow and was an ancient space elevator. I was looking around briefly and I ran across one of these pages and they referred to Shiklosky here, but they referred to his quote unquote findings hmm. uh, as if he had proven, uh, w- you know, w- without any doubt that Phobos was a hollow artificial satellite. And that just that is absolutely not the case.
0: Exactly right. But coming back to the original thing leading people off in this direction, uh, while it's not indication of an artificial origin, there is something interesting about the composition of these moons. I mean, so like if you look at Phobos, it has weird density. It, It seems very low density for a moon or an object of this type. So that leads to other questions like what would be the cause of this low density in the moon if it's not, you know, a hollow alien space? Spaceship or something, which again it's not. And what would be the implications of that low density? And this leads us into our next
1: section, can, because we have some uh, current hypotheses that hold that the density problem is likely solved by, in some cases, large spaces within Phobos that are not areas that were hollowed out by an ancient civilization, uh, but could be uh, due to just the, the the structural qualities of Phobos itself, the way it came together as essentially a big old heap of space junk.
0: Right, and this ties into something else I was reading actually. Uh, so I was looking at a NASA feature from 2015 by Elizabeth Zubritsky uh, called Mars Moon Phobos is Slowly Falling Apart. Mm. So as we mentioned already, Phobos is doomed to spiral into Mars and either crash into it or break up and become rings. Uh, This will probably not happen for tens of millions more years. Actually, the estimates I've seen for this are are sort of all over the place. Some say this will happen in 30 to 50 million years. Some say 50 million years. Some say 100 million years. Um, So uh, I don't think that there's an actual really tight you know, a uh, limit on that pinned down. But it seems somewhere, you know, 30 to 100 million years from now, it is expected to break apart into a ring or crash into Mars, probably more likely break apart into a ring, uh, which is still pretty close in astronomical time.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. We again, we're only looking at the end days astronomically. From a human standpoint, this is so far in the future that it, it's it's hard to imagine that these will truly be humans that observe it if humans are
0: around to observe it at all. Right. Uh, but you remember last time how we talked about we were, we were looking at surface features of Phobos, and one of the things we talked about were the cat scratches, mm-hmm. you know, these long grooves along the surface of the moon. And so what explains those grooves? Well, in this article, it quotes uh, a researcher named Terry Herford of NASA Goddard, who says, we think that Phobos has already started to fail. And the first sign of this failure is the production of these grooves. And so uh, Zubritsky writes that, uh, quote, Phobos grooves were long thought to be fractures caused by the impact that formed the Stickney Crater. Remember, the Stickney Crater is that huge crater on one face side of Phobos that was named after uh, Angeline Stickney, who who worked on uh, observing Mars during the 1870s, along with her husband, Asaph Hall. But coming back to this article, so the idea was that you had this crater caused by a collision with Phobos long ago. Quote, that collision was so powerful it came close to shattering Phobos. However, scientists eventually determined that the grooves don't radiate outward from the crater itself, but from a focal point nearby. More recently, researchers have proposed that the grooves may instead be produced by many smaller impacts of material ejected from Mars. But new modeling by Herford and colleagues supports the view that the grooves are more like stretch marks that Mm. occur when Phobos gets deformed by tidal forces. Now, these would be tidal forces caused by uh, its close orbit around Mars. Now, remember, tidal forces occur when there is a significant difference in gravitational forces felt by different parts of the same object. So when something is orbiting close to a huge object, it will often experience tidal forces. Uh, A very extreme case of tidal forces would be the idea of spaghettification, the much-celebrated way of dying as you go into a black hole, as the, if you're falling feet first... The, the gradient of gravitational uh, forces that you feel as you fall into the black hole are so extreme that the the difference between the forces on your feet and the forces on your head would sort of stretch you out like a noodle. But in more mundane scenarios, tidal forces are also responsible for things like the actual tides, right? You know, as, as – Earth and the moon orbit each other, they exert uh, gravitational influences that are not evenly distributed on the entire sphere of the other body, but they pull like specifically at the at the facing equatorial region of the other body. Right. And so this results in tides in the water on Earth, but also you can see that the spheres of Earth and the moon are also kind of they kind of bulge out at the middle around the, the regions where they're they're most pulled on by the other body. Now, in the case of Phobos, it was once thought that tidal forces should not be strong enough to be stretching apart a moon like this. Uh, but that was when Phobos was assumed to be solid all the way through. At the time of this writing, and, and I wonder how this idea has matured since then. It's possible that, that there have been some arguments against it in the meantime. Uh, but at least uh, at this time in 2015, these findings from from NASA Goddard uh, were that the interior of Phobos is more likely to be this kind of loose collection of rubble it's sometimes mm. referred to as a rubble pile and and that it's all just sort of barely stuck together and then, quote, surrounded by a layer of powdery regolith about 330 feet or 100 meters thick. I mentioned that earlier, right? So on this model, you've got this blanket of dusty powdery regolith sort of uh, sort of like acting like the bindle sack for a bunch of rocks that are just barely loosely held together by gravity. Mm-hmm. So if this model is correct, then there's actually not all that much holding the core of Phobos together. It's just a bunch of junk kind of loosely stuck together by gravity rather than a single mass of rocky core. And tidal forces will have a much easier time ripping it apart than it would ripping apart something that was more solid. And
1: again, mythologically speaking, I think this sounds perfect. The idea of the, the war god's son being this, this fast and fearful uh, creature on the battlefield. But ultimately, he's just this, this wreck, this just partially hollow, falling apart, doomed, uh, you know, wraith of a warrior.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99.
0: Now, we've been looking a lot at Phobos. And uh, to be fair, I mean, I think there's a reason for that. Like a lot of the real interest and and research and and big questions have been focused on Phobos. But Deimos is interesting, too. So maybe we should take a quick look at Deimos in particular.
1: Yeah, Deimos is the smaller of the twins. It's 9 by 7 by 6.8 miles in size or 15 by 12 by 11 kilometers. It goes around Mars every 30 hours It doesn't have grooves and ridges like Phobos, but it has plenty of craters. Uh, And while, you know, normal craters on on other, uh, you know, bodies are surrounded by ejecta from the impact, you know, the stuff that gets launched up when that impact takes place. Deimos's gravity is low enough that impact ejecta achieves escape velocity. Uh, so it doesn't fall, just immediately fall back down. Instead, the debris remains in a ring around Deimos, it seems, and then is slowly redeposited
0: on its surface. Now, we talked in the last episode about how even though Phobos is extremely small for a moon, it's so close to Mars that when you look at it from the surface, it looks pretty substantial in size. It's like uh, not quite as big as the moon looks from Earth, but like a a substantial fraction of it. You can see it as a disk and not just a dot. The same is not true for Deimos. Right. From the surface of
1: Mars, Deimos would appear star-like in the sky. That's how small it would be. It would just look like a star. Uh, uh you know it would you know maybe would stand out a little bit but it, it would essentially just look like a star and that's that's interesting because it it runs counter intuitive to what we think of when we think of a moon now when it comes to named craters on deimos uh, there are only two, Swift and Voltaire, chosen for obvious reasons, because as we explored in our first episode, uh, the works of Swift and Voltaire uh, were early works that alluded to Mars having two moons in advance of those two moons actually being discovered. But uh, I was reading in uh, in Broca's Brain, the book by Carl Sagan, um, he has a whole section where he goes into like the naming of Mars. He lists a bunch of the different gods in addition to the gods that we, uh, that we discussed that have been associated in different cultures with the planet Mars. Uh, and he shares that in addition to Swift and Voltaire, he wanted to name a third uh, crater of Deimos after, um, after René uh, Mag- Magretti, a Belgian surrealist whose paintings featured large rocks, in suspended in the sky uh, or at least two of his paintings uh, uh, depicted a large rock suspended in the sky and they reminded Sagan of the Martian moons quote the suggestion was however voted down as frivolous. Uh, but uh, if, if you look up some of these these paintings by uh, the artists like they, they are really cool. They don't you know they don't look exactly like uh, Phobos and Deimos, but they are these surrealist images of large rock craggy boulders suspended in the sky over the ocean or a landscape. In one case there's a castle on top of uh, one of these boulders, in another case you see uh, a crescent moon in the sky above it.
0: Clearly an inspiration for (laughs) Zardoz.
1: Now, um, obviously, you know, given it's it's a very small moon, uh, and it is also further away from Mars than Phobos. And while Phobos, as we've discussed several times already, is fated to one day crash into the red planet or break up against its power, Deimos is drifting further away and will one day escape uh, Mars entirely. Uh, Though from a mythological standpoint... This I like. I like this too because they have this doomed, insane godling who will one day earn his freedom. He'll one day escape his, the awful war god uh, that that he has served. Uh, but he's just going to wander out into the waste of the solar system, perhaps crash into lesser deities or mortals, and die by their hands instead, or just wander aimlessly. Uh,
0: so that's it's kind of perfect in its own way. Now, we've talked about the idea of missions to the moons of Mars in order to study them and perhaps even return a sample from them that would allow us to to better understand uh, where they come from and what they are. There's actually another one of these scheduled. It's uh, Japan's Martian moons exploration or the MMX mission of JAXA, the Japanese space agency, uh, which is currently scheduled to launch in 2024 and uh, perform an orbital insertion around Mars in 2025. And so it would travel to survey both of the planet's moons. And then the idea is that it will land on Phobos and collect a sample from Phobos to bring back to Earth for study. And major scientific objectives of this mission would include determining the origin of Phobos and Deimos. So possibly answering these big questions that we've been talking about all this uh, research on today. So are they actually captured asteroids that just happen to have these very tidy orbits? Are they the result of a giant impact with Mars long ago? And so forth. And, uh, and also, we should be able to study the history of Mars itself by looking at these moons. But as far as space exploration goes, there's another interesting thing about uh, the moon Phobos, which is that it has often been proposed as a potentially useful base of operations for space missions.
1: Yeah, for the same reason Shiklowski outlined, it would be advantageous to have a moon like Phobos above your Mars. If Phobos did not exist, it would be necessary to invent it. And since it does exist, it would make a handy base.
0: Yeah. And so one of the things is that it has been proposed as a remote control base of operations for surface robots on Mars, So this would eliminate the problem that when we want to control rovers and exploration vehicles on the surface of Mars, there is a large time delay between Earth and Mars where we have to wait after we transmit a command signal uh, for that signal to reach the robot and it performs the operation. and then we have to wait to receive feedback. And this can be a while while you're just sitting there, you know, waiting for your your signal, your remote control signal to reach the rover. And so th- this can cause a lot of uh, slowdown and difficulty in these kind of missions. If you could get your humans onto the surface of Phobos, they could essentially control uh, things operating on the surface of Mars remotely in real time. And it would be better uh, trying to put humans on the surface of Phobos than trying to put them on the surface of Mars itself, because it's a lot easier to get back from the surface of Phobos than it is to get back from Mars itself. To get off of the surface of Mars, you need a powerful rocket to leave the gravity well of the planet. Getting off of Phobos would be, would be a cakewalk in comparison. Now, of course, putting humans or even just probes on the surface of Phobos would still be plenty difficult. And I was reading about one possible complication that really fascinated me. Uh, This was in another NASA press release that I was uh, looking at from October of 2017 by Bill Stegerwald and Nancy Jones. And it is about research suggesting that solar eruptions may have a tendency to electrically charge up the surface of Phobos to hundreds of volts, quote, presenting a complex electrical environment that could possibly affect sensitive electronics carried by future robotic explorers, according to a new NASA study. The study also considered electrical charges that could develop as astronauts transit the surface on potential human missions to Phobos. Hmm. And they quote a uh, a researcher named William Farrell of NASA Goddard, who says, "We found that astronauts or rovers could accumulate significant electric charges when traversing the night side of Phobos, the side facing Mars during the Martian day." So why would this happen? Why would Phobos turn into a giant Ben Franklin turkey killing jar? Well, uh, fortunately, the electric charge is not quite that powerful. I think it is not at the turkey killing jar levels. It seems unlikely that it would be in the human injury range, at least most of the time. But it might be enough to screw up sensors and sensitive or delicate electronic equipment. So what gives? What would cause this? Well, Phobos and Deimos both have no atmosphere, and they are exposed to solar wind, which is a giant stream of charged particles. You can think of it as a kind of electric gas that's blowing off of the surface of the sun in every direction at a million miles per hour. So solar wind hits the day side of Phobos, that would be the side that's facing the sun, And some of the plasma gets absorbed on the day side, but then the rest flows around the rocky mass of Phobos. And this creates a void of solar wind on the night side of Phobos. And the solar wind is made up of uh, two major types of charged particles. You've got electrons, which, of course, are negative, And then you've got ions, you have pieces of atoms that can be positively charged. And the, the electrons are much lighter than the ions. Uh, so the article, again, quotes William Farrell of NASA Goddard, who says, quote, the electrons act like fighter jets. They are able to turn quickly around an obstacle, and the ions are like big, heavy bombers. They change direction slowly. This means that the light electrons push in ahead of the heavy ions, and the resulting electric field forces the ions into the plasma void behind Phobos, according to our models. And so the result is that the night side of Phobos builds up significant static electricity. Quote, The study shows that this plasma void behind Phobos may create a situation where astronauts and rovers build up significant electric charges. For example, if astronauts were to walk across the night side surface, friction could transfer charge from the dust and rock on the surface to their spacesuits. This dust and rock is a very poor conductor of electricity, so the charge can't flow back easily into the surface, and charge starts to build up on the spacesuits. On the day side, the electrically conducting solar wind and solar ultraviolet radiation can remove the excess charge on the suit, but on the night side, the ion and electron densities in the trailing plasma void are so low they cannot compensate or dissipate the charge buildup. And so the team looked into this, and they found that the static charge could reach up to 10,000 volts on some materials that would be moving across the surface. And some of those materials would include, like, the Teflon suits that, uh, that astronauts have used in the Apollo lunar missions. And, of course, this leads – so you build up a gigantic static electric charge on your spacesuit, and then you go and touch something. It's like, you know, when, when you, you shuffle across the carpet, and then you zap your family members. <laughs> They also point out that this is always going to be the case when solar wind is blowing onto Phobos, but it's going to be especially bad during heavy sun weather, such as in the wake of a coronal mass ejection. So astronauts on the surface of Phobos might need, I don't know, they might need mitigation measures for this somehow to avoid accumulating static electricity in this way. Uh, I was wondering, I was looking it up, do they make those anti-static socks I've seen before? I don't know if those actually work. Those might be a scam. I've never really looked into it.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess they'd be useful if you're touching a lot of electronics and stuff. Yeah. But if you're just like a, a kid, they, they seem like a horrible invention. Why would you take this gift of static electricity away
0: from them? Oh, I know you. You like zapping people, don't you?
1: Um, I actually don't zap people as much uh, intentionally. But uh, one thing that my son and I have always enjoyed is if the if, you know, atmospheric conditions are right, uh, he can go down a slide. Uh, at a playground, mm-hmm. and he'll build up that electric charge on the way down, and then he can give me a high five mm-hmm. and when he gets to the bottom of the slide, and it will be what we call an electric high five because it will be, be an actual static shock to it. Uh, so I, I do love that a lot. Uh, you know, Always a hit with the kids.
0: That's so beautiful. I'm going to cry. <laughs>
1: But as far as Phobos goes, this this whole scenario you just uh, discussed here, it made me think like this would be perfect. You have like a Phobos space Western, kind of like the the Sean Connery movie Outlander. Mm-hmm. Um, Outland, uh, Outland, not Outlander. I got Outlander. The, I think is the kill the kill movie. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, the, the Killed TV show, uh, uh, which, which is also entertaining. But no, this is this is uh, this is a space Western scenario where uh, you have your astronaut and he's been left for dead, uh, you know, on the, the far side of Phobos, but he's not dead. So he comes trooping back, walking across the wasteland of Phobos, just building up static electricity with each vengeful step till he can get back to the habitat and uh, and zap his killers or would be killers. Brutal. I don't know if the science completely works, but I think there's enough science there that you, you could make it work in in a science fiction property.
0: Well, hey, OK, so uh, we love the cool idea of the hollow Phobos, but there's not good evidence that it's actually true. Put it in a science fiction movie. Uh, yeah. we, uh, the There is actually evidence that you get this electric buildup on Phobos. It's probably not enough to do the like electric weapon idea you want to do, but hey, put it mm-hmm. in a science fiction movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, use it as a jumping-off point to create your 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 science-flavored fantasy. I'm all for that. All right, well, there you have it. We're going to go ahead and close out our look at the moons of Mars. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. We enjoyed it, and, you know, it's a great opportunity to... to, to Bust out some uh, planetary uh, information to discuss mythology a bit. And uh, I guess the big question is, would you like us to continue this journey now that we have uh, started it again? Should we move on to other moons, other planets, Uh, you know, even even planets that that don't have moons? I don't know if we've I can't remember if we've ever ever done like a proper look at the planet Mercury. Uh, I know we've looked at at Venus uh, a few times. Uh, but I don't know that we've really looked at, at Mercury. So, you know, maybe that's, uh, uh in the cards. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Go to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll find core science and culture episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We publish artifacts on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays. Fridays, that's when we bust out weird house cinema. That's our time to just discuss some weird movies. And sometimes there's a little science sprinkled in there. And then on the weekends,
0: we do a bit of a rerun, yeah, gotta catch them all. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind dot Stuff
2: to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.